You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Road. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Today we kick off Season 14 with Part 1 of our Brewer's Guide to Streets of New Capenna. We take a look at all the cards fit to brew in Modern and Pioneer. That's all coming up on this edition of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, here for the beginning of Season 14, all about Streets of New Capenna. Joining me today is my guy on the left coast. It's Damon Alexander. Damon, welcome. Hey, yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, while we're addressing the Streets of New Capenna and magic, I've been contemplating the trails of California with a big <laughs> trip in the fall that takes a lot of, uh, on the John Muir Trail, which takes a whole ton of logistics. But I'm excited to not worry about that for a bit and dive through some new cards. Yeah, I'm glad we caught you in one of your brief visits to civilization. <laughs> glad you're able to help us unpack some of this new set. Yeah, if a demon-infested city could be called civilized. <laughs> Speaking of demon-infested cities, <laughs> joining us also all the way from the mean streets of new Buenos Aires, Argentina, it's Emmy Sagasti. Emmy, welcome. Hey, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. How is everyone doing? Nice to be here with you guys. Yeah, glad to have you. Yeah, I'm glad that you're here with us. You survived a brush with death these past <laughs> couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Few past couple of weeks have been something strange. Between my cats turning on the oven and me coming home to my oven semi-burnt and everything just scorched down, and then just like a few weeks of bronchitis, it's been like I just need this to stop. I need to focus on the new set, okay? I'm sorry, did you, did you say your cats turned on the oven while you were in the hospital? Yes, 24 hours. So my oven was turned on at least 24 hours on its own. Oh my gosh. And I arrived home and it was like, like I get into my floor and I'm like burned, like the smell of burnt. And I'm like, please, please, the fire was on the other side. Please tell me my neighbor has lost every single thing they own and not me. <laughs> so Just to open the door to like a puff of smoke and so much so much burns like smell luckily it was nothing like i got home like few hours before it the like the, the glass shatter in the oven and it was having real chaos but it was nothing everything was fine yeah i mean that's how you clean your oven right if you burn literally everything inside it it's clean like nothing can survive that yeah <laughs> well geez i'm glad that didn't turn into a disaster yeah yeah me too what were the cats baking, I wonder? So there was three empanadas I had left in the oven. <laughs> so they were meat empanadas, so they might have been hungry. <laughs> also, the worst thing is I come home, I see empanadas, I try to stab them with a huge metal fork, and I just can't get through. And then I hit them softly, and it was like glass. Like, they shattered. You couldn't stab them, but you could shatter it with a small breeze. I was like, everything completely plastic inside. Wow. 
<laughs> it was something. Well, I'm just glad you're still with us. That, that sounds insane. Um, <laughs> glad you're feeling healthy. Glad your cats are not so hungry anymore. <laughs> and that your house has not burned down. Yeah, exactly. All in all, we survive everything. All is fine. <laughs> just weird stuff. All right, so we got a lot on our plate today. A lot to cover. We're halfway through preview week, and we're going to take this entire set in just two goes. So today, our Friday episode, we'll be covering the first half of the spoilers, and then we'll finish up on Monday with the second half of the spoilers. And boy, there's a lot of new stuff to cover. This set looks really... Interesting. Well, <laughs> I realized as I was saying that, that I actually don't believe that exciting is the right word, but... Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. How did we call when someone played something? What was the what was the choice? Uh, inspiring. Inspiring deck building. This deck looks, this deck looks inspiring. Fun and interesting cards <laughs> here. <laughs> inspiring. The ex- inspiring expansion so far. So we can get into a little bit of why that is, and I'm sure we'll see as we go through card by card. But before we dive in, let's just get the housekeeping out of the way right at the top. As always, if you like what we do here at the podcast, the best way to support us is by joining our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash faithisbrewing, making a pledge at any tier you like that can be a dollar a show. Uh, if you choose to go up to a higher tier, there are other cool benefits as well. We even have merch, we have stickers, we have tokens, we have playmats. If you're getting ready to do battle in the streets by your LGS and want to represent with some sick, faithless swag, the Patreon is where you can find all of that. We also have two new patrons we'd like to welcome. They are Dreamspore and Misfits. Thank you very much to both of those individuals for your support. So, with that being said, want to jump right in and start with the interesting choices? Let's go. Right, I think, Dan, you should introduce the first one. I think you are genuinely excited for this one. Luxior Giada's Gift. Legendary artifact equipment costs one to cast, three to equip. Equipped creature gets plus one, plus one for each counter on it. Okay, so that's not that interesting. But there's a second ability. It says equip Planeswalker one. Equip Planeswalker says equipped permanent isn't a planeswalker and is a creature in addition to its other types. Loyalty abilities can still be activated. So what are we talking about here? You cast this for one, equip Luxure for another one to some planeswalker you have in play, and now your planeswalker is a creature. And you just check how much loyalty it has, and Luxure grants it that much power and toughness. At first sight, yes, that's exactly what we have. That's the beginning, but that's the beginning of the enigma, right? Of the puzzle. This is indeed a puzzling card. <laughs> Every time I look at it, I still like plus one, plus one for each counter. So I guess the Planeswalker's loyalty becomes its stats. Unless it's a Gideon. <laughs> Unless it's a Gideon. So let's start with some important stuff out of this card regarding the rulings of it. First of all, the... Planeswalker can activate its loyalty abilities, as it says, luckily. Second of all, it keeps plusing, it keeps minusing. It won't die if it runs out of loyalty counters. It can die via damage or via being destroyed as a creature, but if it gets bolted, for example, it's not going to lose loyalty counters. Right, because it's not a Planeswalker anymore. Exactly. So if you have a Wandering Emperor that's cast as a 
3-3 or as a 4-4, because it has four counters and it gets boltered, it's still going to have four counters. It won't change how it works. It turns out we'll also change Planeswalkers normally in Magic before the set is released on MTGO to not take damage, as we learned from the recent buggy MTGO release. Yeah, exactly. Oh, is that what that was about? That's a hypothesis, at least. The hypothesis is this caused cost that, and Rest Down Bag is caused due to the some of the um, beagles. Okay. Like, right. the, the introduction of both those stuff caused all the bugs that we have been facing this week. Hmm. Luxior Jada's Gift is my pick for the most interesting, most intriguing card of the set. I was trying to follow all the things people were throwing different ideas around, different combos around, and I ended up just having to like write them all down. And by the time I was done, I had just like a massive list. And I put that all up in article form on our homepage. So you can find that at faithisbrewing.com. We do have articles and strategy there from time to time. You can also find it on our Twitter if you're more of a visual person, want to see all the pictures and memes. I have a little Giada De Laurentiis meme for all the Food Network Secret Lair MTG crossovers. I think this card is going to be huge. Uh, maybe not for Modern or Pioneer, at least for Commander. But at least in our <laughs> formats, I can think of like six, seven, maybe eight different decks I want to try with this. Yeah, it's it's so weird. I mean, like the most natural combo people are pointing out is that this goes infinite with Devoted Druid. Um, and that's cool. We also have other cards that go infinite with Devoted Druid. That isn't that new. But like, there's all these cards that just... Like, the Planeswalker half of this is, like, the really weird, interesting part. Like, Hero Behemoth Beckoner is, like, an easy 7-7. Yeah, but I think it's also the fact that... So, you can go... Up, you can play a Devoted Druid deck that's featuring also Saheli Rai, and all the combo pieces that are not Devoted Druid and Saheli Rai, you can get via the last trigger on Ursa Saga. You can get the alternate meals, you can get Luxior, and you can get the bow. What's the name of it? Viridian Longbow. Yeah, exactly. You can get all the three pieces you could need to combo with any of those two cards via the last trigger of Ursa Saga, and almost all of them via Stoneforge Mystic, which makes you have a lot of redundancy. Right, so we've seen Green White Devoted Druid for a while after the Stoneforge unbanned, people were trying to put it into that deck, and they discovered that Viridian Longbow was a perfectly fine way to convert infinite mana and infinite untaps into a kill. So that was like already a deck that people were somewhat exploring. Add Urza Saga to the mix, and give the Vizier Remy's effect on a one-mana tutorable piece, and you have actually maybe a much more robust plan. Now, you still have to untap with Devoted Druid. That's always going to be the challenge. But I think I would expect a lot of people to be trying this right out of the gates in Modern. Oh, yeah. Especially when cards like Postmortem Lunch exist, right? True. But there are other combos. So you mentioned Sahili Rai. This one's going to work a little bit differently. So here, we're going to equip Luxior to Sahili. Now Sahili is a creature. Sahili's minus two can copy any artifact or creature. So now that Sahili has become a creature, she's able to copy herself with the minus two. How does that help you? Well, Legend Rule kicks in, you're going to keep the new Sahili, you're going to lose your original Sahili, and now your Luxior is not attached to anything. So are you stuck? Well, actually, no, you're not, because the new Sahili is itself an artifact because original Sahili's minus two just creates artifact tokens. So now, now that you've like started the chain, 
you no longer need Luxior, but you're able to just keep minusing to Sahili on herself over and over again to generate infinite enter the battlefield triggers, infinite planeswalker death triggers. It actually works the same way as the liquid metal coating Sahili combo that you know sometimes has been tried with like Ultra of the Brood as the third combo piece. So that's another way you could go, right? Make Ultra of the Brood and Luxior your combo pieces, put Sahili around that. You know, I imagine that a deck like that, I would also put Felidar Guardian into it because Felidar Guardian exactly. plus Ultra of the Brood also goes infinite. If you have two Felidars or if you have one Felidar and one Glass Pull Mimic, I tried this during our Heartless Summoning week. So all we have to do is have a deck with Devoted Druid with Zero Remedies, um, Luxior, Felidar Guardian, Glass Pull Mimic, Sahelioray. <laughs> okay, yes. Exactly. It should probably be a Yorian deck to fit all this stuff in. <laughs> it should be a double Yorian deck at this point. <laughs> exactly. And you just try to combo. Gonna fit all these combos in. Toss some battle wits at some point. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Get Fire Shoes to play this in his next uh, Battle of Wits charity tournament. <laughs> okay, so Devoted Druid, that's one. Sahili combo, that's two. Maybe you want to put the Sahili combo into a Karth Super Friends deck. You know, if you don't have Ultra the Brood to mill them out for getting all these infinite Sahelis, at least Karth can draw all the Planeswalkers in your deck. Every time Sahili dies, you'll get a Karth trigger. You could even try the Sahili Ultra combo in Pioneer. That's something that previously we couldn't really do, because Felidar Guardian is banned in Pioneer. Yeah, but this, uh, this provides a new alternative, but I don't know if it being an artifact, it's that much of an upside in Pioneer, but you don't have Ursa Saga and Stoneforge. Yeah, the thing with these kind of like splitter twin combos is it's so hard to analyze them in a vacuum. Like, yes, it goes infinite, but you have to kind of like build a deck, play out matches, and understand how good are these cards when the combo doesn't work. Uh, you know, what is your backup plan? What kind of interaction is commonly played that interrupts the combo? And so with this one, like, what's so confusing to me is like, is this card kind of good outside of a combo sense? Like, does it just make your Sahili's or your Felidar Guardian? Or, you know, I don't know. This card just does something so weird as a normal equipment. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, on average, most decks will not have anything that naturally has counters on it. Like, Planeswalker is right. the only permanent type that just brings a lot of counters for free. Right. And I've looked for this. I've looked to see, like, which creatures are commonly played that have a lot of counters on them. And they make you pay for it. You know, like a Stone Coil Serpent, maybe. But A, that's not a good card. And B, if you want to equip Luxior to a creature, you have to pay the three mana equip cost. And that's a lot more. Right. In your modern, you know, Sahili Rai deck, how often are you attacking with a Renin 6 for lethal or, or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're 7-7 seven, seven Renin 6. You, got, you could emblem or you could hit them for 7. It's up to you. Yeah. No, it's true, of course. I think the fact that this has kind of a similar combo to Sahili Rai, but in a way that is more readily tutorable with commonly played modern cards is certainly interesting. Um, I'm also, yeah, I'm curious about just like the pure fair use case where in Pioneer you're playing this, you know, green aggro deck. That deck does play a lot of cards that have counters on them. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but I guess if I'm equipping to a creature, it's just too expensive, I think. If I'm equipping to a Planeswalker, it feels efficient, right? One to cast, one to equip. So I was thinking like Pioneer, I would put this in a Gideon deck. If you equip Luxior to Gideon, Gideon becomes a creature that already has like a base power, usually base power four, sometimes five, depending on which Gideon. And then Luxior gives you that base power 
plus an additional bonus for multi loyalty. So you're talking about like nine nine Gideons, eight eight Gideons. It's going to be a weird layers thing. Like, what happens if you activate Gideon and then we keep Luxior? Does it change the size of Gideon? How does how does it? I have no idea how it works. Yeah, well, Gideon makes himself a creature with uh, you know base power four four, and Luxior doesn't really specify, and it just has plus one plus one. So I assume that it doesn't really matter what order you do it in. Yeah, but the fact it doesn't specify means like the card as it's written with the current rules of MTG does not work. Like that card <laughs> right now does not work. If you just program Sell that it card, now. <laughs> if you program that card into what's actually the rulings of MTG, like into MTGO, it doesn't work. It does nothing because it's a non-existent, non-existent creature with plus one plus one. I think I think you're not quite right. I think either the card doesn't work or MTGO doesn't work. And what we've learned no, is no. that the engineers chose to make MTGO not work. I mean, if you bring that card, like if you could play Magic as a program, IRL, and you add this card, it doesn't work. It doesn't do what you think it does because it does nothing. Like in in the in the rules of the set, the rules that come with the set, they're gonna say something about the placewalker being a zero zero, or a placewalker becomes a creature counts as it's something's missing in the rules of magic that's going to be added soon to make this work. I saw on the internet that rule 208.5 is the rule that will take care of it. Any creature that for any reason does not have a defined power and toughness defaults to zero. Okay. That's what we'd expect to happen, but I don't know for sure. I, okay, okay. I expect we'll get clarification in the official release notes. Exactly. So going back to Gideon, like it's huge. And also, like, what removal spells kill it? Maybe it's on their turn; they can fatal push it now. But otherwise, like, red removal's terrible. It doesn't do like anything. <laughs> Balance is good, but otherwise, your Gideon is like pretty sturdy. They can't even they can't even attack it down now. I mean, it's worth trying for sure. Yeah, it's going to be. I mean, they can just kill it on their turn because it's not indestructible. It'll be indestructible on. Yeah, <laughs> you take away the normal way that you kill planeswalkers, namely combat damage, and you replace it with a different way of killing planeswalkers, namely creature removal. And that's like a weird transition. Yeah, especially post cyborg. Like if you're playing blue white and they cyborg out all their fatal pushes, and all of a sudden you equip this to a very hero of dominaria, like <laughs> you have this like indestructible block. I guess it's not indestructible, but yeah, it's weird. Yeah. All right, so we got Devoted Druid, infinite mana. We have Sahili, infinite triggers. We got Karth for value. We've got Gideon Tribal for giant beatdown. Other decks that came to mind, Devoted Druid can fit into a Yawgmoth shell. There's actually a combo that doesn't require you to untap with Devoted Druid. If you have Hapatra Vizier of Poisons and Devoted Druid and Luxior in play, Luxior just cancels out the minus one, minus one effects but you're still adding minus one, minus one counters, so you end up just getting infinite snakes. And you can do that even if Devoted Druid is summoning sick, which is kind of interesting. Okay. It turns out that Aaron Barrage had already tried Devoted Druid with some success in a Yawgmoth shell uh, a couple years back. Because Devoted Druid is, like, roughly as good as Wall of Roots, depending on what you're trying to do. Okay, yeah, I can get behind that. Uh, maybe you want to put Luxior into just a Bard-class deck. I mean, that deck likes Legendary Permanence. It plays Planeswalkers, Domriana, Cabolas, then it goes to Reveler. It's a super open-ended card. I mean, we've named, like, seven different strategies already. And that's not even getting into the nonsense. 
Maybe it is. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe it is. Maybe nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're all nonsense. But speaking of a card that's definitely nonsense, up next we have Errant Street Artist. This is a single blue mana for a 0-3 legendary human rogue with a combination of abilities, Flash, Defender, and Haste. And then the weirdest one, one blue tap, copy target spell you control that wasn't cast. You may choose new targets for the copy. So we're talking like a storm trigger, fluster storm. You get one extra, you know, days out of it. <laughs> we are go- we're going for the low, like for, we're looking at, at the least amount of value possible. So I was asking David about this and we were trying to come up with anything to use this activated ability on and I couldn't come up with anything. But the rest of the card is interesting. Uh, the fact that it's a one meta legend. Yes, I'm here for that. Mox Amber, <laughs> let's do it. The fact that it has flash, you know, give me a Slitherwisp deck. We got the Slitherwisp ex- expert here. Damon, do you see this for the, the flash deck? <laughs> uh, I really don't. I think that to make this card any good, you have to have the ability to utilize this activated ability. No. <laughs> and Slitherwisp best is busy playing flash creature is not cards that cast spells without or that get spells on the stack without casting them. I hate it says without casting it instead of casting it from your hand because even weird stuff like spell coloring your own stuff does not work. Like it really has to come from your like it really you really have to copy a spell in the stack before you can copy it again. Yeah, one of the set mechanics here is called Casualty, and it does make copies of spells, but there are not going to be too many of those that made it to our list. So I don't think that Errant will see any play for like that reason. I I do think there's maybe an Arcadius the Strategist deck that's just dying for this. (laughs) For the one mana 03 flash. Exactly. (laughs) Or a Mox Amber deck, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, the thing is in... in, uh... Phoenix and Pioneer plays Galvanic Iteration, which puts spells on the stack without casting them. On the other hand, Galvanic Iteration has flashback for three mana, which is the same as this costs to get kind of an extra use. Yeah. All right, so that's Errant Street Artist. What do we have next? Next we have the Unlucky Witness. A 1-1 human citizen for rare, which reads... When the witness dies, exit the top two cards of your library, and until your next 10 step, you can play one of those cards. So, I really like this as a sacrifice target. Like, get two looks at the card. It's a one for, like, it's you're not getting two cards out of it. You're just getting some card, card selection. But I think it's actually one of the best creatures to sacrifice for one mana, right? Yeah, I mean, if you compare it to Experimental Synthesizer, which he's a lot of play in these red-black sacrifice decks, this card compares reasonably. Um, it doesn't kind of get you two activations, but you have until your next turn to play uh, the card, and you get to look too deep. Um, and creatures, I think, are generally better than useless artifacts. Yeah. Okay, so you're almost guaranteed to get the card out of it because it's two cards until your next turn. That's pretty forgiving. Yeah, if you need a land drop or a spell, uh, this, this actually gives you card selection. Yeah, being until your next turn is a lot more useful than just this turn, because it means your opponent can just kill it during their turn, and you're still getting your value, unlike the synthesizer. Well, David agrees with you. Uh, he's written here that this is one of the best cards in the set, 
a massive improvement over iTwitch. So yeah, I guess we've cleared that bar. That's good. <laughs> I mean, Mainmate is an, is an upgrade over iTwitch, but... Didn't know that bar existed, but I suppose it does. <laughs> Whether Unlucky Witness is better than Synthesizer, I'm not ready to go there quite yet. I mean, I kind of like the fact that Synthesizer is an artifact. I don't think it's better than Synthesizer. I think it's different because it's a lot easier to sacrifice creatures than artifacts. And you're not playing Synthesizer if you don't have ways to sacrifice it, right? So it depends on how that goes, like what sort of deck you're playing. Mm. I think it's a it's the closest creature we have right now to Synthesizer. Right, like for example, um, Deadly Dispute doesn't care creature or artifact, but Witch's Oven does, and it prefers creatures. I agree with that, yeah. That's what I mean. I think Synthesizer is better, but it's easier to sacrifice creatures in most decks. Next card up, Witness Protection. Single blue for an enchantment aura with enchant creature. Enchanted creature loses all abilities and is a green and white citizen creature with base power and toughness 1-1 named Legitimate Business Person. Well done, creative team, a Legitimate Business Person. So why did this card make our list? Well, it's one of those effects that has been around the game for a long time. Frogify or whatever they call it. But it's never been at one mana, and every once in a while, they'll just, for the sake of variety, maybe in limited environments, they'll just take a staple effect like that that usually costs three or two, and just say, what if we just give it to you for one mana? And at that point, it sort of becomes interesting. Like, I look at this, and I see a card that reminds me a little bit of Pongify and Rapid Hybridization, which are actually somewhat useful. Like, I've played those cards in the last week in Saltai Crabvine, just because they are blue cards that kill problem creatures. And I could see myself playing Witness Protection instead. I mean, I get you. I get your idea, but it's a Frogify. I can't see modern playable Frogify. <laughs> well, it's one. It's one blue mana, right? That, that's definitely better than Frogify. Yeah, it loses all abilities, so it's like their creature is just not there anymore. I mean, it's it's there, but it's not. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that in main deck. This card is pretty mediocre in the sense that people are playing Prismatic Ending. Uh, awkwardly against Murktide Regent, it still retains the counters. Uh, so it's a, you know, a pretty beefy, mm. uh, <laughs> pretty beefy business person. Um, <laughs> slightly less legitimate. Uh, but then, like, as you mentioned in Crabvine, I'm sure people side out the Prismatic Ending. I mean, maybe they, they don't, but I feel like one for one removal is not really what you want in that matchup. Uh, cards like Teferi to at least get their creature back active for a turn, they probably saw those cards out. These cards are not very good against uh, a whole host of like grave crawlers. I mean, you side out most of them, but you leave some of them because they're playing crabs. I would never side out Prismatic Ending against Scrapbine because crab is in the name. I would side out Teferi, but I want all my endings and all my march because that crab is not surviving the turn. Yeah, yeah. It would be a shame if you, you know, take down their Sanctifier on Vec and then they just uh, Prismatic Ending it. Yeah, like, I can see your point then, but I I, I can't get behind Pongify. I, I, not Pongify. Pongify... Yeah, I, I would rather play Pongify over this. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So yeah. we're in the one-drop section right now. As is our custom, we usually start with the cheapest cards and work our way up. The next card on our list is an honorary one-drop because you can cast it for one in certain scenarios. You should only cast this for one, It's what Stan's saying. 
Yeah, so what is this mysterious card? This card is the Knockout Blow, two and a white for an instant. This spell costs two less to cast if it targets a red creature, so there's the reason why it usually costs one. Deals four damage to target attacking or blocking creature, and you gain two life. I'll quickly say, David loves these types of cards because they require a lot of deck-building finesse. Like, what kind of situations are these good in? Are they bad in? How do you kind of maximize all your odds? This card is perfect. Uh, it takes a lot of complex... Sorry, just kidding. You put this in your sideboard against red decks, right? Anything more to it? <laughs> no, that's it. It's really good against red decks. You put it in your sideboard, you bring it in, and you kill an Aiden from War Mana and gain two life. That's it. Yeah. It's part of a cycle, as far as we can tell, a Mystical Dispute style of templating. And Mystical Dispute, I think, far exceeded my initial expectations for it. I mean, now we understand how extremely powerful it is to have an effect that targets a color but is never dead, right? You can always get a card off Mystical Dispute. And I think it's the same with Knockout Blow. Like, if you're not sure, like, maybe only part of their creatures are red. But you can always get something with this. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you have to compare it to both Pioneer and Modern have cards that kill red or black creatures that are more efficient against black creatures than this would be. Um, You know, Devout Decree is, like, the best in Pioneer, Celestial Purge in Modern. And so is the ability to, like kill some green creatures or some humans or you know arc light phoenix well, i guess arc light phoenix is red but how much equity do you really get from killing non-red creatures out of sideboard the thing with knockout blow i think the most important one to say the least is the fact you can play it in cascade as well and i would love to see the cascade versions with white coming back as it really helps against the red decks i know it's a minor thing but if you're playing something like uh, you go turn one Ragavan and your opponent goes turn one Fetchland and he's playing Rhinos and gets to blow your Ragavan, you're going to get blown out of the game. It actually annoys me that it works with Cascade. Like, Cascade has enough stuff already. <laughs> Cascade just keeps getting better. Exactly. Like, this is like white mystical dispute. Yeah. You would think Cascade would keep getting worse because there's so many cards they can print they can't really play. But nope. <laughs> they just keep dodging that. They just keep getting more cl- cards in proportion to what they should. Yeah, oh yeah, Force of Negation wasn't enough. Here's Subtlety. <laughs> Here's Foundation Breaker. Alright. So if I'm not feeling these cards so far, uh, I need someone to make me an offer I can't refuse. <laughs> Alright, I can make you an offer you can't refuse, then. So, what about an instant for one blue mana? You get to counter-target creatures, non-creature spell, and I get you treasure tokens. Mm, no, no that's that's the <laughs> card and offer you can't refuse an offer you can't refuse is just the two treasures itself oh give me give me the treasures so i counter for two treasures that's the deal i mean like this is a great way to lose a game instantly i <laughs> i don't understand why people are excited about this card so i hate it i think it's unplayable ashanti who is one of the biggest belcher minds alongside bob was like no no this is already being playing in belcher like this is, we have already created the new uh, the new piles with recross, and they already placed the sort of you know they were playing the red pact into the song into the well infernal plunge I think is the card exactly exactly and you get to counter your pack with this so you don't even have to lose to the upkeep trigger if you don't win, and then you get the mana to combo off. Yeah. So let's quickly cover the fact that this card can be used for two things. One is to counter your opponent's spells. 
as this sort of like spell pierce thing, but instead of it being conditional, they get two treasures. And two is to counter your own spells as like a weird blue ritual. <laughs> Build your own. I mean, if you're playing a zero mana spell, you're getting one mana out of it. Right. So as a ritual, it's a bit sketchy. But, but isn't that the line you just mentioned in the Belcher deck? Yeah, yeah, but Belcher is sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> you can call sketch all you want. <laughs> that deck wins games. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. I'm just saying, Belcher is the definition of being sketchy. With all their false lands and their false rituals <laughs> and their false counter spells. Hey, they're legitimate business people over there in the Belcher Discord. <laughs> One yeah. thing to keep in mind, though, Emmy, is that... Um, the treasures, you can use them at another turn. So even though yeah. the turn you play it, you're only going up one mana, uh, maybe, if you're countering a zero, you can go up more mana on a later turn. Yeah, it, uh, but then you can just play stuff. Like, I think it's there are easier ways to make two treasures if you're planning to going off in another turn. But in a combo deck, like Belcher, this can be used as a counter spell because you don't really care about your opponent getting treasures a lot of the time. Yeah. Weirdly, if you're against the Belcher deck, you may also not care too much about the treasures. Obviously, you'll definitely lose some games because of it, but you'll also lose games with Spell Pierce. Yeah. Or you can just play Negate and not bother with all this treasure stuff. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play Negate and not worry about losing the game instantly by giving my opponent two treasures. Well, what if they make an offer you can't refuse on your Negate? Do you have another Negate? I'll use the two treasures that I was given to cast yet another counter spell. <laughs> I mean, this cheaper negate is only good in like blue on blue mirrors, right? In those mirror matches, I do not want to give them treasures. That seems like a disaster. That's my thinking anyway. I'm ready to be, to be proven wrong. Yeah, but I mean, also, I would say Force of Negation isn't a great card in blue on blue mirror matches, but it's like a very important card on the whole. Yeah, but this is okay. This is Force of Negation at home, but we actually have Force of Negation in Modern. Now, if we're talking Pioneer... I mean, Force of Negation is Force of Will at home, so it's like a step behind a step, right? Okay, yes, exactly. Yeah, I do think this card is bad, but it does intrigue. I think it's bad in the same way Belcher is bad as a card. It's bad until someone combos with it, or like it does what it shouldn't do. All right, more interaction at home. We have Strangle, Sorcery, Single Red... Three damage to target creature or planeswalker. Strangle. I'm I'm, I'm angry Strangle is not a black card. <laughs> Strangle should be a black card. I don't care if it's black, sorcery, target creature gets minus 0, minus 3, or target planeswalker loses 3 loyalty points. I don't care. This should be a black card. And just make it work the same if you want. Strangle should be black. That's a black name. I swear there already was a card named Strangle that was like three black black for minus four minus four or something. Am I crazy? No, that's it's pretty close. It's let me just it's creep of darkness, something like that. Strangling spores. Hmm. Two mana for minus three minus three. Hmm. But yeah, Strangle is a name for a black card, not a red one. And that annoys me more than it should. So in terms of playability here, um, we're only talking about Pioneer in Modern, not relevant. In Pioneer, you have Fiery Impulse that does 3 damage at instant speed. It does not hit Planeswalkers, but Fiery Impulse is a 4 of in some of the current builds of Phoenix. If you want to hit Planeswalkers, you have 2 damage effects, like Flame Blessed Bolt, 
You could play maybe Frostbite if you were doing a snow package, which people are generally not doing. But if you just want the option for three to a creature or Planeswalker, it is actually a new effect in Pioneer. You know, it doesn't require spell mastery. It's just clean. You know, you see whatever, Archon of Amiria. You see a Narset on three. You want it dead, it's dead. Kills a Bonecrusher Giant. But these are niche cases. In my experience, like these two versus three is not a meaningful breakpoint in Pioneer. I think it's not because of how the format... Like, you you, you think there's not enough X, X3s in the format right now? Yeah, there's just, like, there's not a big incentive to play creatures. I mean, Blue, White, and Phoenix are both just so good at killing creatures that investing in creatures' power and toughness is just not a very good plan in Pioneer. But that could change in the future. We'll see. I mean, you can say that all you want, but there's tons of deck playing creatures. Whether those creatures have, you know, kind of three toughness commonly, I, I think is less likely, even though it feels like it should be an important number. But there's all sorts of decks that play Lana Elves and Winota. There's decks that play Lana Elves and Old Growth Troll. There's decks that play, uh, you know, all the, the red one drops and such. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, maybe you just prefer, you know, Flame Bless Bolt against all of those decks. This kills Bone Crusher Giants. Yeah. All right, so that's Strangle. Shall we move on to the two drops? We can go to the two drops where things get a bit more interesting. For most of them. Tell us about the Courier's Briefcase. We got the Courier's Briefcase. One and a green for an artifact treasure, which is something like we haven't seen before, I think. Which is an artifact that comes with the treasure type, which reads... When the briefcase enters the battlefield, you create a 1-1 green and white citizen creature token. And then, of course, it has a treasure ability to tap it and sacrifice it to other man of any color. Or you can pay Wooberg, which means one of every color, and tap it to sacrifice and draw three cards. I don't know if this card is great, or I'm just seeing something where nothing is. Like, I'm not sure yet. This feels great to me. This feels like a, I was going to say staple, a card that will definitely be a functional card in certain strategies because it's exactly Prosperous Innkeeper, but flipped. And we know that Innkeeper is a useful effect, right? When Noda plays four copies, Prosperous Innkeeper has completely changed the landscape of like Pioneer Ramp, right? We see in the uh, Jund Sacrifice decks rely heavily on Prosperous Innkeeper. So you have extra copies now. But not only does it duplicate the effect, it also like works with Transmogrify in a way that Innkeeper doesn't. Yeah. Well, to be clear, Innkeeper does have other texts, namely you gain life when creatures enter the battlefield under your control, which I think with these Winota decks probably comes up a decent chunk of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we certainly lose something, but yeah, maybe we gain something here. Yeah, I mean, for starters, you gain that ability to sack for three cards, which if I were playing like a, like a four-color Fires deck with Transmogrify, I would definitely just go into the fifth color. Oh, yeah, 100%. Play the briefcase. I mean, especially with Fires of Invention. I mean, that, that seems perfect. Yeah, although what's funny is this card doesn't really ramp that well into Fires in the sense that you'll still be on three lands. It does ramp well into Transmogrify. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of uh, Careful Cultivation, which is a card that, you know, I was interested in as a card to make Transmogrify better. Now we have more of that effect. This is, again, better than Emergent Sequence, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> that's not hard. That, that, like, that's not an achievement. 
<laughs> Fair enough. Uh, it's also a treasure, and there's a treasure theme in this set. So yeah. this is a card to keep an eye on for sure. But we can move on to the Tainted Indulgence. I love this card. Blue-black instant. Draw two cards, then discard a card unless there are five or more mana values among cards in your graveyard. So a mana value is just zero, one, two, three. It's not talking about mana cost, which would be like, you know, how many pips of each color, that sort of thing. That would be really easy to achieve. Yeah. I think this is quite difficult to achieve. Five or more mana values means you have a land, that's your zero, and a one-drop, a two-drop, a three-drop, and a four-drop in your graveyard. I don't think it's that hard in, like, a controlling shell. Like, I'm in love with this card, and I'm going to say why. I talked a bit about this when we talked about the Esper Charm, in that I really want to play a reanimated version with a Drogo plan, and this fits right in. And if you're playing, like, a controlling shell where you're playing maybe stuff like Solitude, Tainted, Consider... Faithful Mending, Lands, and Teferis, you are getting 5 mana values quite easily a lot of the games. Yeah, this card seems quite strong to me. I understand how, yeah, you're not going to get 5 mana values all that quickly, but you don't have to play Mitra's Bobble to enable it in these control decks or whatever. You'll just get there naturally over the course of a game. And then Instant Speed, Draw 2, Discard 1 is actually like, we don't have any cards that do that for 2 mana, do we? Do we have any cards that do that? Not that I know of. I think this is the first. Yeah. I'm not going to say this card is like the next expressive iteration, but like it might be. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think it's potentially that good. Yeah, I think it's one of those sleepers because it doesn't look amazing. Like you look at it that it's remarkably simple as a card, but also quite powerful. I mean, compare Charter Course, right? Charter Course seemed like it was going to be so good, right? A- Draw two, discard one, and sometimes just draw two. And yet, it hasn't really found any homes outside of exactly Phoenix decks. I think Sorcery Speed against Instant Speed, when talking about stuff that might fit in a control shell, it's like day and night. Exactly, yeah, I, I agree. Instant Speed is worth at least one mana in a lot of cases, like half a mana to say the least. Yeah, I mean, think about every time you see somebody draw to a Archmage's Charm at the end of your turn. And it just puts the back into the game. Yeah, now of course drawing two with that is better than draw two, discard one, usually. But this eventually becomes draw two, the same as Archmage's Charm. And also, it's not too hard to get advantages from having cards in your graveyard. Maybe it just makes your next hand indulgence easier as you discard your, you know, seven mana nexus of fate or whatever. The only problem I have with this card, quite specifically, is the fact you don't get to choose once you have five mana values in your graveyard. Yeah. You're playing a reanimator deck and <laughs> Exactly, because I want to play this in a reanimator deck, or at least a plan B reanimator deck. Like I and I'm just living the dream, right? Like turn one, do some maybe a discard spell, turn two, say go with contraspell or indulgence up. And in your opponent's end step, indulgence, discard at the ferry, turn three, say go with counterspell or the Esper Charm. And I can just reanimate at the ferry on end step if I have to, or I can counterspell, or I can reanimate an Archon. I'm just living for the versatility. <laughs> your opponent feels clever with end of your turn, Violent Outburst, planning to go off again on their turn, and you, in response, <laughs> reanimate your Teferi. <laughs> That's it. Th- that's what we want. Yeah. That's what we live for. See, Cascade is solved. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking at all the axes. 
So for me, Tainted Indulgence works because this condition of five or more mana values is pretty easy to eventually get in a controlling strategy, which is the same style of deck that would eventually want to just have instant speed draw two. This next card uses the same mechanic, but in a much less successful way. And I have to say that the vast majority of cards with this five or more mana values are templated like this one, Aven Heartstabber, and they're a big miss for me. So Aven Heartstabber, Baleful Strix at home, blue-black, flying, 1-1 one, one bird. When Aven Heartstabber dies, mill two cards, then draw a card. So what are we talking about here? 1-1 one, one flying that dies and draws a card? Yeah, mostly. In most, in like 90% of scenarios, that's what it is. There's a second clause here. As long as there are five or more mana values among cards in your graveyard, Aven Heartstabber gets plus two, plus two, and has death touch. So that would be cool, right? 3-3 three, three flying for two that draws a card when it dies? I think this card is so far away from what it should have been. <laughs> yeah, it just feels like it's not good enough at the time. Give it flash, or make it so when it leaves the battlefield instead of dies. Or make it have death touch on its own, and you get the plus two, plus two if you have the five cards. Or make it a 2-2 two, two flying at least, and it gets plus one, plus one, and death touch. There's so much stuff, small buffs to this card to make it at least playable. Make it mill when it enters instead of when it dies. I mean, it's, it's really hard to set up five mana values early in the game. Right. And then you can't use a graveyard for anything else. Like, you can't dig through time and away. You're vulnerable to any kind of graveyard hate, and we're going to get to a very interesting graveyard hate piece in just a little bit here. Yeah. So this for me is a miss. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But then we have a card that you're a lot of you are much more excited about, I think. Maybe a bit too excited, taking each of this text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this card is Rafine's Informant, one and a white for a 2-1 human wizard. On ETB, it connives. What is connives again? Is this our first card from the set that does it? It is draw a card, then discard a card. If you discard a non-land card, put a plus one, plus one counter on this creature. It's kind of like the Season Pyromancer where you make an elemental on non-lands, but instead of elementals, you get a counter. Yeah. So why do you like this card so much, Emmy? I'm not. I'm, I'm not the one to be loving this card. I'm just saying, if you look, for anyone that's our patron that gets to look at the extensive card notes, you are going to see a lot of fanboying by someone who loves Pioneer about this card. I'm not going to say who, I'm not going to expose anyone to the love for a 2-1. You can hear him laugh sometimes in the background, you know? He's like a voice. But I don't love this card that much. It's, yeah, it must be an, another co-host. Maybe one <laughs> so who's let's not let's just quote this anonymous co-host. <laughs> quote, I might be lost in the sauce, but I think this card is borderline great. A 3-2 that loots is way above the curve for 2 mana. It should slot into any and all Greasefang lists, as well as make way for a dramatic GPG comeback, referring to, of course, God Pharaoh's Gift. <laughs> so this card is so good, it's enabling two complete archetypes, and it's just going to turn over Pioneer. That's what I'm reading. Well, it might. I mean, it might. It's, it's not as bad as you're saying it is. It's not as good as David is saying it is. <laughs> it's, it's right around that borderline. I actually I built a deck today that when I was trying to think of like what is a good two drop for it, this seemed to be the best option. Um, I was building like a party deck, and I needed a wizard that was you know a decent wizard with decent stats and three two that loots or connives, I should say. 
I guess it's not always a three two. That's kind of disappointing. If it was a two mana, th- if it was like a two mana three one with Konai, I would be all right. Or a two two, so it becomes a three three when you do the three the thing. I think it's missing just a tad bit more. It's a human. So we have to remember that Professor of Symbology was also a two one that rummaged when it came in yeah. or learned, but that card did not really make it outside of standard. And it was it had the possibility of being card advantage, which is one doesn't. Yeah, but also it's like the rough comparison that the lessons weren't really pioneer power level yeah. to put in your sideboard. And rummaging is just a lot worse than looting. It is. It is. Besides that, we have the last bit of text by Dan, which I think he was the most excited about. Which is a wizard for your party deck. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I posted this deck on our Twitter feed. So you can go check it out if you want to see Coveted Prize make a long-awaited comeback. We have Rafine's Informant for the two-slot and a couple different three-drops, which we'll get to in a minute, so I can talk more about the deck there. I'll quickly say that basically every time you top-deck your first Barhelion, you'll be so much better that you are looting, not rummaging. True. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's true. All right, next up we have an actual modern staple. Uh, Shadow of Mortality. Oh, you're talking about the Death Shadow variant. <laughs> yes, exactly. Is, is it, what does it do first? 13 Black Black. <laughs> Shadow of Mortality. 13 Black Black. My god. Creature Avatar 7-7. Seven, seven. If your life total is less than your starting life total, this spell costs X less to cast, where X is the difference. Um, I'm not really a math guy. Damon, explain this to me. Yeah, so... Let's just run through a few examples. If you're at 18 life, you get just kind of two, so it costs you 13 mana. That is not playable. If you're at zero life, it's very cheap, but you're dead. If you're <laughs> at one life, it costs 19 less, so it's at black, black. Uh, basically, anywhere from seven life or less will be just a black, black, seven, seven. Right when Death Shadow enters the picture at 12 life, this will cost you five black, black. <laughs> so not so good there. Three black, no, five black, wow, that's bad, five black, wow, that's, that's terrible, wow, no, no, this, yeah, okay, no, that's, well, before we get into the subjective evaluations, we, we should mention that this card is probably a Death Shadow variant, <laughs> Bro, I, I mean, we can all align on that, <laughs> I think I have the really, really bold claim that this actually, it's a Death Shadow variant, Oh yeah, gosh. you you could disagree and say it's more of a scourge of the skyclaves variant. But if force of the skyclave is a shadow so. variant, like if A equals B and the shadow and scourge is a shadow variant, and shadow fortality is a scourge variant, A equals C. So <laughs> my definition, my ma- my mathematic shadow fortality is a shadow variant. You could argue it's closer to scourge in the sense I suspect that just like scourge, it is not really modern playable. Oh. Whereas Death Shadow is. <laughs> Scourge was playable for a while, and then Solitude just came and said hi. And it got lonely and just left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, Death Shadow, 35% win rate at <laughs> SCG Dallas. That that card is looking pretty well positioned right now. Yeah. Whoa. 30, 35% win rate? Oh my god. It was sort of devastating. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, well, we're not going to put Shadow Mortality into a Death Shadow deck. But we're definitely going to put it into Calibrated Blast, which, depending on who you ask, is somewhere between Tier 4 and Tier 2. <laughs> Dylan Cruzy, Dylan MTG, who was a guest on our show, you know, he did a lot of work innovating this, and the deck has got some legs. I mean, it, it, it's always around and kicking in the 5-0s. Calibrated Blast play four copies of that you play two throws of chaos and you just mulligan for it and then the rest of your deck is lands and very 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 expensive cards the most expensive cards in modern cost 15 they are emrakul they are world spying worm yeah and because that's not enough the calibrated blast deck has to stoop to playing 14 mana cards so it plays blink moth infusion and it even plays some 12 drops in scion of draco so right away we can just cut the blink moth infusions we can maybe also cut the Emrakul's. Um, Shadow Mortality doesn't mess with your graveyard in the same way that Emrakul does, so it's just like an upgrade there. And you can just cast it. If you're under pressure, you will eventually get down to 7 life, especially with the help of Shocking and Fetching in Modern. That's the plan. So it just makes the Calibrated Blast deck more robust. Yeah, and gives it a bit of a fair plan. Between a lot of quotes. Yeah, I mean, that's why they play Sign of Draco, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, there, are, there are more expensive cards they could play, but they play that because they can actually cast it sometimes. Now, the question on my mind is, can we live my personal dream of the completely fair Calibrated Blast deck? You know, the one where we're going to use Witch's Cottage to put Shadow of Mortality back on top of our deck. But we're not playing 40 lands, we're playing like 23 lands and just like a Death Shadow Jun style, you know, with Street Wraiths and Thought Pleases and stuff. And eventually... I'll have a Shadow of Mortality in my graveyard. I'll sack a, be- a black fetch land. I'll put the Shadow on top. I'll flashback Calibrated Blast for 15. I mean, this is so much cleaner than the Scheming Symmetry deck that I made Damon play a few months back. <laughs> why, why would you do that to Damon? Well, we were on the cutting edge, and it turns out the cutting edge just kind of sliced right past us with these much better <laughs> builds that are around now. We just wanted to be the first, but not the best. But we were yeah. the first. <laughs> And that's all that matters in the end. The fact that we're talking about the card that I could consider to be a Death Shadow variant. Yeah. Uh, one quick comment. This card doesn't get quite as wrecked by Solitude as Death Shadow does, where if you have two Death Shadows and they play a Solitude or Source of Plowshares on one of them, you lose both of them. Uh, this card, if they do it on one of them, you just can't cast the second one in your hand. But if you kind of are dumping your hand to the board... Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, I think, part of why Death Shadow sucks so much is is the four-color Blink decks are playing all these Solitudes. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it sucks, but it's the thing that hurts them the most. Yeah, this card is also extremely strong against Prismatic Ending. Uh, we're going to need both purple and a few more colors of magic before <laughs> this is a relevant <laughs> target. We're going to need, like, 15 colors of mana, and then you can remove it. All of them. I will be trying this in the, the fair calibrated blast deck. That was a rhetorical question. I've already got like a couple different shells sketched out. So perfect. You'll be seeing it again, I'm sure. So going forward, I want to go to a card that maybe we consider to skip, but I'm going to mention not due to power level, but due to a fact of something they are doing with the printing of it, which is the Gala Greeters, the Elf Druid, the one and she for the one one elf. Hmm. So the important thing about this card is not the card itself. It's a it's a two mana one one that whenever a creature enters the battlefield, choose one. You haven't chosen this turn between a plus one plus one counter, a top treasure token, or you gain two life. 
So you gain up to one of them each once per turn. So the fourth creature does nothing. And the important part about this card is the fact they're making 11 different printings of this card. One for its regional region. So this is a problem that has a different art for every single country. Every single language of magic. So there's 13 arts of this card, each based around the country it's given, the regionals it's given, being given to. And they're beautiful artworks. Exactly. And that's something really cool they're doing for the first time. Like third, It must be really annoying for resellers, especially when choosing between the... There's like traditional Chinese, simplified Chinese, Russian, Sherman, Spanish. There's a lot of versions. So the, the idea is that the artwork depicts what this era looked like. Exactly. I guess what era is this? The 1920s? Exactly. Something like that? And it has a really good like feeling for each of them. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it accomplishes its task quite well. Yeah, if there's one common theme of human emotions is partying. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that's what I wanted to mention mostly that I'm really happy with that. All right, we have one final two-drop, and this is an important one. Uh, this one, to me, looks like one of the more impactful cards in Pioneer for sure, and possibly also in Modern. Talking about the unlicensed hearse. Damon, tell us about this card. Yeah, this is two mana for a vehicle. We'll get to the stats in a second. Uh, tap, exile up to two target cards from a single graveyard. Its power and toughness are equal to the number of cards exiled with it, and it has crew two. So, comes in, takes out two cards, throws the crew into a 2-2, two -two, throws from there. It's the first time I have seen an effect like this that actually targets, right? Because we have really, yes. we have a lot of effects like this that are like, your opponent exiles a card from a graveyard. This must be so annoying to tap down on MTGO. Well, we've had Kaya Orzov Usurper, which exiles two cards from a graveyard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the same effect almost. But this is cheaper. It's colorless. It's actually a relevant creature. It gets huge. Really fast. Power and toughness equal to the number of cards exiled with it. And it functionally has haste, right? Because vehicles are not summoning sick when they're just vehicles. So it comes in, it immediately just starts devastating the graveyard. If you're like a Phoenix player and you were planning on delving... You're not going to delve with Unlicensed first in play. You're, you're never going to delve. If you're a Crab Vine player like myself, um, you're basically out of business if people start playing this card, which I'm hoping they won't, because <laughs> that would be really sad. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if you ever try to keep a Merchad region from coming down with Relic of Progenitus, sometimes it works, sometimes it really doesn't work. This card goes through a graveyard a lot faster, but it doesn't go through the graveyard in one clean shot. Like against Dredge... You know, two cards at a time is actually not really fast enough. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be. It is and it isn't. I mean, we've seen scavenging news can sometimes hold off dredge if you can just target their payoffs. I think that the targeting effect is actually like a huge upgrade. Oh, yeah. I mean, not just getting two cards at a time, but being able to target those cards makes this just a massive tool. The fact you can just yeah. go with it, like, you, you will never get the Lidium against this. Not once. Not for a single second. You can force the Lidium through a Relic to make them crack it because you just keep exiling lands or whatever. The chance of you getting the Lidium through this is zero. You'll also not be able to kill it with Unholy Heat. I mean, they don't have to make it a creature until it's... Huge. Whatever size they think is safe. And it's crew, too. That's very, very doable. Two is really low, yeah. 
Yeah, so I think for me the question comes down to if you're in a graveyard matchup, are you sure you want this over Relic of Progenitus, Rest in Peace, any number of the kind of premier anti-graveyard cards, Leyland of the Void, you can keep naming them. A lot of them have kind of a common problem. They died a Foundation Breaker, etc. Um, is this a card that you can play main deck because it, it can attack? You know, in, in all matchups, you'll be able to build up, you know, your graveyard at least. I think some decks are willing to play this main deck, and I think that's pretty interesting. I don't know which decks, but it feels like something that could be main deckable. Yeah, I mean, I guess like a Naya Winota deck, uh, you know, Winota herself can crew this. And yeah, and you get a trigger. Yeah, that's not irrelevant. And it's an amazing attacking graveyard. That's just making sure you have a creature on board the turn you get Winota. I mean, when you're a creature deck, it always feels bad to be boarding in these Soul Guy Lantern effects because they're not creatures. The turn you spend investing mana into them is a turn you're not adding pressure to the board. And the unlicensed hearse kind of gets around that, right? Like, you'll eventually be rewarded. The two mana you spent will eventually yield a giant creature. The, the, the thing that's exciting about this is that if you can play this main deckable, you get a ton of equity from playing anti-graveyard cards in your main deck. Because a deck like Dredge or Phoenix expects to win a lot of game ones off of the yeah. power of their graveyard when your opponent doesn't have their relics. And then they go into game two, they sideboard around it, and they bring in their cards that kill the relic or rest in peace or whatever. But you've already won game one thanks to your hearse or whatever. Like, you know, maybe you don't win every game, but if you increase your equity at game one, you could increase your equity plausibly by, you know, 10% with this playing four of these. If you can play this sort of card main deck, it's huge when it lines up. The thing is, how often, like, the problem is in Pioneer, your graveyard is not going to be as stock that you can be sure that you're going to activate this multiple times, right? Like in Modern with Facelands and such, you play this turn two, and there's going to be two cards in graveyards, 100%. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be like turn four or four four, to say the least, which makes it, even in the non-graveyard matchups, an interesting card. In Pioneer, it depends on how much the graveyard gets used by the deck that wants it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, turn 10 or whatever, you know, activate my Hall of Storm Giants, crew my 24-24 unlicensed hearse. <laughs> Go in for lethal. All right. That does it for the two drops. We go on to the threes, and we have a banger here. We have the best. Actually, two bangers, because he comes with a, with a spare. <laughs> Damon, tell us about Obnixilis the Adversary. Yeah, so this is one black-red for a three-loyalty Nixilis Planeswalker with Casualty X, uh, where as you cast a spell, you may sacrifice a creature with power X. When you do copy the spell, the copy becomes a token, and then the copy isn't legendary with starting loyalty X. Technically, that's weird because you can you can declare Casualty you know four and sacrifice a seven-mana creature, but don't do that. Just always choose the mana of the creature you sacrifice. <laughs> The power, power, power. <laughs> right, right. So what does it do? Well, plus one, each opponent loses two life unless they discard a card. If you control a demon or devil, you gain two life. Minus two, create a 1-1 one, one red devil creature token with when it dies, it deals one damage to any target. And then minus seven, target player draws seven cards and loses seven life. Okay, so first things first. We all know how annoying having a Clothis on the other side is. Imagine your opponent going turn three double Clothis and starts plussing up on your life total. That was my first fear when I saw this card. Like, disregard everything else. Double Clothis, pumping up. For life a turn. 
Right. Because you can't really discard to this and expect to keep up outside of like very niche scenarios. Yeah, if you're playing like a living end deck, you can maybe discard to this and laugh at them. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing with the punishment mechanics, they're famously, you know, bad. But the punishment mechanics usually are kind of like one shots. You know, risk factor actually did see play because they can maybe take the risk once, but the other time you cast it has to go kind of the other way. Um, and so it diversifies you in, in that sense. And this card also, with two of these ticking up every turn, like how quickly can they kill them? And if they can't kill them, you have two of them ticking up every turn. So they will be faced with the Punisher question a lot. And yeah, you can't just like discard a bunch of cards in the late game with burn. I mean, maybe you can in some games, like enough that it does suck. But in the late game, you can. But against burn, for example, because they stop pressuring your resources. But if your opponent is playing some sort of aggressive mid-range deck that you have to keep trading one for one with stuff like, I'm saying in modern mostly, Ragavan, Darcy, and stuff like that, or Tarmogoyf, all of a sudden, you don't have the resources to actually start two for one yourself against this. You have to deal with the Tarmogoyf. So we're expecting Obnixilis to come down, usually with a copy, and start immediately plussing on you. But let's, let's make sure we understand the other parts of the card. The minus two creates a 1-1 red devil creature token that deals a damage when it dies. The primary purpose of that, I think, will be to allow the plus one ability to also grant you the two life so it's a full drain. Because if you don't control a demon or devil, your opponent will lose life, but you will not gain life. So if you find yourself wanting to gain life, you should have one of your obs, or one of your nixili, I don't know which one's his real name, um, create a devil at some point. Alternately, you may find that you know your opponent has eventually mustered some attackers and is ready to start attacking one of your obs, and you want some chump blockers. So yeah, the minus two does that. But the plus ones are chipping away at their life, and they're working towards the ultimate, which is minus seven. Target player draws seven and loses seven. So if you want to draw seven cards, you have to be prepared to lose seven life. Or the ultimate punisher. The ultimate punisher just deals seven. Yeah. <laughs> so this is so interesting. I mean, like, you look at the casualty X and you're thinking, casualty X, does that mean I can just make a creature with really high power and immediately get a seven loyalty ob? And just ultimate right away? Like, is that a good thing to strive for? Yeah, just a good thing to do some of the time. I think this is sort of the Uro phenomenon, which is... I don't know if you guys remember when Uro was printed, everybody was like, oh, I'm going to play Thoughts Cower and mill myself and r play this really fast turn for turn 5 escape Uro and just try to win the game with my 6-6. Six, six. And three months later, everybody was like, no, just play Uro in your normal deck and win because the card is insane. <laughs> don't, don't make weird stuff for Uro. Play a good deck and add Uro. <laughs> Are you talking about my chronic flooding turbo Uro deck? I'm never going to name you by name. <laughs> I just want you to know I'm referring to you and a lot of other people. Because that deck <laughs> did not win a game, but uh, it was very, very good at escaping Uro. Exactly. And I think this is the same. Like, I know we're going to see people go, like, turn two looting. Turn one, like, play something that discards. Turn two, unearth my Skelemental. Oh, sorry, on, like, then get, like, four mana and go, like, unearth the Skelemental, get in for six, play Omnixity, sacrifice my Skelemental. And do weird <laughs> stuff like that. Because that's going to happen. That's bound to happen. People like crazy over-the-top stuff. I just read the fear of I'm going to turn to one Ragavan, I kill it, turn to Tarmogoyf, kill me for three or four, sacrifice it, get two Omnixilis and start plusing. That's my fear. 
I don't care about the weird stuff. I care about the consistent, terrible stuff. It makes you remove stuff as sorcery speed out of fear of them sacrificing it for casualty. Well, that's kind of the question. Is that like against like a blue white deck, for example, you land your first creature. It's like a crappy creature that they don't want to kill, or they just can't kill uh, due to their mana situation or whatever. Um, So then they untap, holding counterspell. They say go. You untap. It's turn three. You cast Obnixus, you sack your creature, now you have two Planeswalkers on the stack, they can maybe only counter one. And so you resolve an Obnixilus. And so that's like the case where it seems like insane to me, where you could just like almost assuredly jam through your Planeswalker, upgrade your stupid little, you know, 2-1 or whatever into a uh, hand-attacking Planeswalker. That's gotta make a creature to pressure again. Right, right. And so in that situation, this card actually seems extremely powerful, perhaps like overly powered. But if you're like behind on board, you sack a creature, so you're even more behind on board to make a planeswalker that can make a one-one devil. Like that's not that good. And like it's... if you don't have any creatures again, and you're behind on board, it's going to come in, make a devil, and then probably die. I mean, on the previous situation, it's not that bad because you're not making a devil; you're making two. Right. Like you sacrifice any two-power, three-power creature, especially. Particularly a three power one, and you get two planeswalkers alive, two one ones that when they die, that, that that trigger with any X two. Right, two devils is is maybe around better than twice as good as one devil in, in when you're behind on board. Yeah, but I think the biggest fear of this card is what if your opponent is systematic. Like, if I'm playing in modern or pioneer a deck and I'm going like turn one creature, turn two creature, and my opponent kills both of them, I want my turn three play to be amazing. And this is this feast or starve sort of situation in turn three, because playing this on its own is really bad. Like if I turn three shot this, it's terrible. If I don't have casualty. Like one of Nixilis is not a playable three mana planeswalker. Right. Whereas a card like Teferi, which obviously is is one of the best three mana planeswalkers ever printed after maybe like Oko. You know, Teferi always comes down and gives you a card, slows him down at least a little bit. And that mode is sometimes pretty bad, but it's always something. And it's always more than a 1-1 devil, I think. (laughs) Right, right. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you cast a card with casualty, that's a cast trigger, and that means that the copy can be countered or can't be countered? It can be countered, they can both be countered, they cannot stop you from like, you can't. I think it's not a trigger, so it's not like cast this and you can remove my trigger in response before I can sacrifice. Okay, so if I'm trying to, like, get a seven power rotting regisaur or tarmogwaif or construct token or something, and I'm excited to slam Obnixilis casualty seven so that I can ultimate right away, the opponent does have the option to say, okay... No, no, they don't. Well, they don't They don't have the option to remove the creature, but they can counter the copy. They can counter the one that starts with seven, exactly. They can decide which one to counter. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like what happens is you're casting this card, uh, you're paying the mana cost to, as part of casting your spell, you sacrifice your creature. What's cool is you could do this, like, after Tarmogoyf resolves, you have priorities active player, so they can't remove it first Yeah. if it just came into the battlefield. Uh, then once you do that, you put it on the stack, a trigger goes on top of that on the stack to copy it, and then that trigger resolves to actually put the copy on the stack. Exactly. And then the, the new copy will resolve first, and then the original. 
So yeah, the opponent can counter the copy if they want. They can counter the original. If they have the right sort of counterspell, there's not many of them. They can counter both. Lose focus. Time to play lose focus then. <laughs> right, right. I mean, Wafo Tapo was playing summary dismissal in his uh, blue-white modern deck to counter <laughs> Amulet Trigger through Cavernous Souls. No, he has tried to counter 13 mana Amragul. That's just Wafo being yeah, Wafo. Both, both. Yeah. <laughs> but also, important bit of tidbit, the casualty X token registers the amount it enters with, so in case you copy the token with an Esika's chariot, it enters with the same amount the token did. Oh, interesting. Okay. So if you go turn 3D, turn 4 chariot, turn 5 attack, if you played it with casualty 3, you get a th- uh, an Omnixidus with 3 loyalty. You're saying it just remembers the original casualty forever? Exactly. It remembers the original value of it entering the battlefield. Exactly. Got a little brew going here. I like this. I, I'm just telling you, Sean of Mixilis. Also, why the, what is Ob? Is Ob something? Or is it the name and Mixilis is the last name? Why is it? You just, I realized this when you named it. You said Legendary Planeswalker Nixilis. And I was like, why did he say Nixilis? And I went and said, oh, where's the Ob? <laughs> It's gotta be honorific or something like Obnixilis, Opnixilis. Maybe it's a name because Elspeth Kirill is just Elspeth, and Chase Belen is just Says. Maybe it's name or last name is Ob. Any name Ob? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It does suggest the last name is the first name because you know Chandra has a last name, but it's Planeswalker type of Chandra because some of the Chandras are dressed to kill, and though there's no last name present in the the name. But they are all uh, named after... The, they all have their first name as the tagline, right? Chase, Elspeth, Nisa. Right. So this is actually okay. named Nixilis. It's the name, and Ob, it's implied to be the... Yeah, it's like um, the Bajorans, Kira Nerys, you know. Nerys is the first name. I, I just come... Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> I just... I, I, I know, I just say Ob is the last name. Like, this is last name Ob. And it makes it a lot less scary as, as anything. <laughs> yeah, and here we thought the Gallic readers were the ones to educate us on culture. Exactly. Mr. Ob. All right, let's move on. Okay. <laughs> another three drop here. Another, another three drop. Okay, I'm going with this one because I just love the card. So, Expert Rescuer. Two and a white for a three mana creature human row that has lifelink. And when Expert Rescuer enters the battlefield, you return a creature with mana value two or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. That creature can't attack or block while you control the expert rescuer. And the card's name is Extraction Specialist, we should say. We're reading off a oh, older translation. Sorry, okay. Extraction Specialist. That sounds much better. <laughs> but So the name is Expert and Rescates, which translates to the expert in rescues, like literally. Like the, the <laughs> translation is valid. Like Expert Rescuer is actually more valid than Extraction Specialist. That's why I just in my mind it was perfect. In my mind it made sense. It's Spanish. It was spoils it was spoiled by a streamer that lives like one hour from my house. Oh. Yeah, well this begs the question then. How do you translate extraction specialist extraction specialist? Especialista in extracciones, which is like specialist and specialista in extracciones in extractions. So it's it that's why I just say extra rescue and made so much sense to me. Because this was previewed by a streamer, Argentina Argentina streamer, and it just made sense. Oh, yeah, just look at it. Yeah, Ex- Experta on Rescates. I don't really speak Spanish. Experta on Rescates, exactly. It's Experta Rescuer. It, it makes sense. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> All right, so as for what it does, 3-2 Lifelink 
brings along a friend. The friend can't attack or block until the ex- until the extraction specialist <laughs> is off the battlefield. Until the synthesizer leaves the battlefield. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so what what do you think of this card? I mean, it's two bodies for starters. Kind of. It's kind of two bodies. So I'm gonna call this card Renegade Rally at home. Oh, that bad, huh? No, no, not that bad. I love I love Renegade Rallyer. Like Renegade Rallyer. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, no. Renegade Rallyer has a small problem of having revolt, and this has lifelink as well. So it's not a. It's not like an strictly worse Rallyer, which is pretty big. Like, well, this is upgraded value then, right? I mean, it just happens. No, no. Rallyer brings back Renan Six and lands. That's the bottom. That's the big difference. Well, what I would say is Renegade Rallyer is a strong modern card in a modern that has been power corrupt way beyond the level of strong that Rallyer lives in. Exactly. Uh, but Rallyer, yeah, it's not a great card in Pioneer. Because of the Revolt. Yeah, like, Revolt's hard. Your targets aren't run in six. But this one has some insane lives. Like, just sort of the... Be in the mid-game, top deck this, get back a Charming Prince, target your Expert Rescuer, get back a Wall of Foments, get back literally any two drop it's like an instant board where you have a 3-2 a 2-2 plus an ETB and the can't attack or block doesn't tend to be relevant in the decks that want this sort of card right because you're looking at the value aspect of it like I'm talking about the Emeria shell for example I have been running in modern where you don't care about your creature not attacking that turn you just want your extremely efficient 3-mana 3-2 lifelinker Lifelink is actually a huge upside on this card over Rallyer. If only this could get, like, I'm afraid of it not getting any target. If this could get something else, like, if it said, like, if this could get lands, I don't care about not getting Brennan 6, I care about it having, needing a creature on battle, on the graveyard. But even the case you get back, like, an Esper Sentinel or a Thraven Inspector, it's still a 3-mana 4-4 with Lifelink and extra text. So that all sounds good, but to me, when I look at this card, I see Human Rogue, and I say, oh, this is going to be great in my party deck. Because the party deck, as you know, you just need bodies in play. And it's hard to get bodies in play when you're only casting one creature a turn, and they're just throwing removal spells left and right. Extraction Specialist! It's a rogue that can bring back a cleric, or a warrior, or a wizard, like Rafine's uh, Rafine's whatchamacallit that we talked about earlier in this episode. That's a wizard that I cast onto that made sure I had something in my graveyard for my extraction specialist to bring back. So it seemed like it was all coming together. So I threw together a little party aggro deck uh, using those two cards. So you're saying you're playing this party deck and your opponent is trying to you know kill the party and you're saying that in that situation extraction specialist is just the card for you. I hope so. <laughs> I think this card I think this card will see play in Pioneer. I will play it in Modern. I don't know if it will see play. I will play it, which is a different aspect of it. Because it gets it's a card that you can ephemerate efficiently, and that's just what I love. But yeah. Well forget about party, but other creatures David has a nice list here. Jace Friends Prodigy, Young Pyromancer, Luminarch Aspirant, Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, Archfiend Vessel. Kinnon, Reality Chip, Charming Prince, Fiend Artisan. These are all creatures that are eligible for getting extracted that don't need to attack and block to contribute meaningfully to the battlefield. With the Bessel, it's sort of amazing because you get, what, 8-7 of stats, part of it with Lifelink on turn 3? 
Yeah. That's a big tempo swing. And you even ignore the cat attacker block part of it. Yeah, I mean, like, we tried to play reanimation spells with Archfiend's Vessel and never really got anywhere. But part of the problem was that if you're just trying to, like, reanimate it, they can kill the token as, like, their worst-case scenario. Yeah. Maybe they're bouncing the token. But here you at least got a 3-2 lifelink out of it, which like, isn't nothing. I mean, a 3-2 lifelinker is not that far away from costing 2 mana if it has additional upside, right? What you're bringing needs to cost at least 1, 1.5 one to be this, for this to be playable. Well, I mean, I'll just put it this way. I've used Solitude as a creature in Modern to close out games or play defense, pad the life total any number of times. And it's like surprisingly good how like a 3-2 lifelink compares to, for example, like a Snapcaster Mage. A 3-2 lifelinker makes rising really hard for your opponent because even if they're hitting you for the usual 5 or 6 with a Tarmogoyf, you are not really losing that race, or at least not by much. So, yeah. That's, uh, that's kind of a, an optimistic case. I, I'm not convinced that we found the card to break Archfiend's Vessel or that we ever will. No, no, I agree. But I think this is at least on the interesting side of cards. Like, this is the card I hope to yeah, see yeah. more of every single expansion. The ones that can get us chatting, can get us excited, but are not going to break anything. Yeah, I, I would say that if this card can make a deck like Black White Party Aggro, a competitive <laughs> tier one deck in Pioneer, <laughs> then Pioneer is actually a great format, no matter how many times you play against Lotus Field. <laughs> All right. of the so, I'm party deck. <laughs> Extraction specialist. That's your your task, your purpose in life. What is my purpose? <laughs> you make party work. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my oh god. god. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on. Oh, another rogue. Another rogue. This is great. <laughs> All right. We're <laughs> I'm asking everyone in the Discord after hearing this. I need everyone that listens, go to the Discord, find the first comment, which is going to be mine, saying, Dan, we're here to help you. This is an intervention regarding party. And just <laughs> copy and paste it, okay? I just need adepts at this task. We're helping Dan. They keep bringing new party cards, though. <laughs> it's going to be good someday. This set is so many rogues. Like Someone in the Discord said, I think, almost 75% of the creatures previewed so far have a party creature type. <laughs> this is a dream. One of these days, the next Ragavan will be a rogue or a wizard, and Dan will actually be able to build a competitive... Maybe maybe need, like, two of those cards. But he'll get there someday. <laughs> maybe three, up to five, maybe? <laughs> yeah, if, if, like, Ragavan is a rogue and Tarmogoyf is a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can get a real deck going. <laughs> oh, 35 out of 59, sorry. I, That's I a overstated lot. the numbers. That's a lot of party creatures. So, what's our next party creature, Dan? Toulouse, Clever Conductor, Legendary Creature, Human Rogue. The mana cost is three, but it's kind of weird. So you need a blue mana, and then you need a hybrid blue-white and a hybrid blue-black. So you can pay this with blue-blue-blue. You can play with blue-blue-black. You can play blue-blue-white. You can play white-blue-black. There's actually a whole cycle like this at Rare. Yeah, monocolored, monocolored shard cards. Yeah. Okay, so you're paying three. Yeah, so the card is basically, the casting cost is as blue as you want it to be, but you're allowed to use up to one white or black. And or black. Yeah, exactly. And for that price, you receive a 3-1 human rogue legendary creature. When to lose Clever Conductor enters the battlefield, it connives. That means you draw a card, you discard a card, and then it gets a plus one plus one counter if you discarded a non-land card. 
You also get two additional abilities. One is a static. It says whenever you discard one or more cards, exile them from your graveyard. The second ability is when to lose dies. You put all the cards exiled with it into their owner's hands. So you're immediately going to sort of stash one card away when you get that enter the battlefield trigger. But if you have anything else that discards for the rest of the game, all of that gets stashed in your exile zone and when to lose dies, although not when it gets exiled, but when it dies, you get all that stuff to your hand. So I'm going to say my only problem with this card, which I'm going to mention another card to make my case, which is the two, the two mana hideaway creature from Modern Horizons 1. I don't remember the name of the card, though. Watcher for Tomorrow. Thank you so Watcher much. Tomorrow. Exactly. So, my biggest problem with this, if, if it dies in response to its ATV, you just get one for one. Right. Also, if, if you build up a big board with it, you have all these sweet spells that are exiled, and then they bounce it, their spells are gone forever. Yeah, but that's less common than just getting this bolted in response, which is like, so common for that to happen. Well, what I'm saying is that this card has multiple failure modes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, bolt on the stack of the trigger is good. Bouncing it, exiling it. These things are all good anytime. Well, we should say we're not going to try this in Modern. This is more of a Pioneer card. And David highlighted this one especially because he said this is his favorite card in the set. Although not the best, but... It's a style that he really likes. Yeah. And I, I understand where he's coming from. The upside, I mean, the ceiling. Imagine stashing like five, six, seven cards under Toulouse and then just getting them all back. So I w- so here we look at the two extremes of Ruin, right? I was well, I was afraid my 3-mana three 3-2 three was not going to have a 2-drop in the graveyard by turn 3. <laughs> and here we have Dan hoping his 3-mana three 3-1 three is going to survive until turn 8 <sighs> so he can draw 6 cards. I think it's going to be a three mana four two personally. <laughs> so, so there's that. I, I think it's a real, it's a real way to evaluate cards. You have to look at what is the ceiling because that's how they price them, and then you have to like work backwards from there. You say, okay, what is the best case scenario? Imagine that. Is it new? Is that fresh? Is it even good enough? Because sometimes the best case scenario is still not good enough. Okay. But in this case, the best case scenario is very good. And then you have to figure out, okay, how hard do I have to work for it? How much am I compromising my normal play patterns to work towards this? And you meet in the middle somewhere. It feels like, you think of the card Riel, the Everwise. That card is like a very, very niche role player in Pioneer. Doesn't see any play in Modern. Can, Can maybe show up in the right kind of EDH deck or casual deck. And it can be pretty good when it gets going, for sure. You know, you discard three cards, you draw three. Um, Faithless Looting becomes insane with it. But this card feels like if you jump through hoops, it can become real. And that that doesn't seem good enough to me. <laughs> yeah, that's not a ring endorsement for the Club Yeah, no, it's that stuff. <laughs> um, unlike real, it turns sideways with less help. Hmm. Alright, well, on that sobering note, uh, let's Let's move on to the next card. We're not going to make it through everything in this session. We'll be back on Monday for the rest of the set, but let's do a couple more three drops just to close things out. So, Damon, tell us about Professional Facebreaker. Yeah, so this is two and a red for a 2-3 human warrior with menace, and whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to a player, create a treasure token, and then sack a treasure, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. 
So we have the ability to generate treasures, and we also make treasures more valuable by letting them cash them in for uh, you know free red-style impulse cards off the top of your deck to play. Anybody who at all follows the news for Prosper Tomebound as an EDH deck has already you know pre-ordered a bunch of copies of this. <laughs> um, but how do we see this card fitting into Modern and Pioneer? I want to say just a really quick and efficient no in Modern. Because as perfectly written below, our normal heuristic for creatures, understarted, no ETB, and it's just a synergy card. And that's just so much going wrong with it. Yeah, okay. Modern modern's a tough sell, but how about Pioneer? Okay. Well, the same tests apply, right? <laughs> so not having to enter the battlefield trigger is a huge strike against it. Not having generous combat stats, strike two. Requiring build around synergy is strike three, so it's already struck out. However, you get to come up to bat multiple times in the game of baseball. So on this next at bat, maybe we're going to do something sweet with all these treasures. It does have some really interesting stats, right? Or not stats. It does have some really interesting abilities are. synergies. Yeah. There's a treasure theme in this set. We've come to understand that treasures are the most precious resource Garfield ever conceived of because they make you work so hard to get a single treasure. And here we're finally seeing cards that like recognize that. I mean, being able to trade a treasure straight up for a fresh card off the top of your deck is amazing, right? Imagine a Magda with a Springleaf drum <laughs> plus this. Imagine uh, the Gallag readers. That makes treasures. We didn't read the text, but it makes treasures every turn. There's a cat rogue that just taps for a treasure. It's like a mana dork that taps for a treasure. That's new from this set. So there's a lot of incentives now to build a treasures deck. I mean, Goldspan Dragon can generate a lot of treasures. Turning them into something meaningful is a little bit harder, but here you have Professional Facebreaker, who itself can generate treasures. Menace is basically unblockable and constructed. Yeah, it's a lot of card advantage, potentially. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to see. I will say that in Legacy, the card Meltdown sees a lot of play because of this 8-cast deck that gets a ton of artifacts on the board. But if you happen to be playing Professional Facebreaker and you drop a Dockside Extortionist, that is potentially some serious value. <laughs> okay. So with that quick thought, uh, let's move on to Voidrend. Yeah. This is white blue black for an instant this spell can't be countered destroy target non-land permanent so basically like a esper abrupt decay mm. I, I was i was gonna say better than gishan making hmm. or i'm gonna say better vindicate better vindicate oh my gosh that tells me it's getting late and we need to wind down the <laughs> no 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 you're talking you're talking silly right now i mean what excuse me after the spraying scenes against March of the Other Worldly Lights fight, I'm just gonna say I'm right. Alright, yeah, instant speed. Well, basically, Vindicate can kill lands. This is an instant that can't be countered. Instant is... I said we said instant is so much better than sorcery speed for any control or midrange deck. Like, there's no point of comparison in, like, how much better that is. Okay. Fair enough. I can at least buy that as a hypothesis. Uh, it's interesting. Is this the card that Esper Control needs to break through? Yeah, typically I would say three mana point and shoot removal is always going to underperform. 
But you look at a car like Dovin's Vito, and it just fundamentally changes the way that control, I was going to say control mirrors, but control versus anything with counter magic. The whole texture of the matchup changes when someone has access to a guaranteed answer, and Void Cleave takes that and says, okay, even if you snuck your Planeswalker through, at some point I'm just going to wipe it away. Right? I'll just run you out of threats in your deck. Yeah, every time this kills a Teferi here of Dominaria, I think you're really happy with how that turned out. I think that's huge. The fact your opponent can just go defeat. A lot of the time your opponent is going to try and go defeat your Shades plus protection, and this will just shut it down. And Angel gets his wings every time that happens. It's a beautiful thing. More concerningly, this means that an Ad Nauseam or Living End deck can now definitely kill your Planeswalker, enabling them to have their Force Negations become live to fight the next Planeswalker to then uh, resolve their Cascade spell. Okay, so you guys really like this card a lot then. You're you're seeing it not just for Pioneer, not just for Control Mirrors, but just a multi-format tool. Yeah. It, it's hard to say. I mean, it's definitely a little bit clunky, but the ability to say no to anything, like, it's pretty strong. Um, of course, Prismatic Ending lets us do something similar. It can be countered. It is more efficient at cheaper values, and it exiles, which is actually pretty clutch. But this this cleanly kills a Murktide Regent or a Jace the Mind Sculptor or a Blood Moon. The list of targets goes on and on. Kills you know Primeval Titan. Uh, does not kill their Cavernous Souls to let them not cast it like Vindicate does. Does not kill Tron Lands. Hmm. Yeah, like that's the that's the other side of it. But I still think it's good enough. Like even with that downside going for it, it's the minority of the time you are vindicating a land. At least, generally. All right, so we're running out of our allotted time here. We're going to come back on Monday to finish out the set review, but I should ask Damon, Emmy, do either of you have a card that you just want to talk about for sure today to close out this episode? Let me see. I'm just going to say one extra comment. The sentences are all unplayable. I'm not, so not even hope of us talking about ascendancies on the next week, unless it's the Maestro's <laughs> ascendancies. I think it's the one that's at least Talk about? I'm sad about that aspect. I'm sad about that aspect of it. I was really hoping they would be good. And I'm a bit eh. sad, to say the least. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of tendencies to get through. I guess they all make us sad, but that's a subject for another episode. I think we got through the cards I was looking for, Dan. We have plenty more to go, of course. Yeah, me too. Same thing. All right, so that's going to do it for part one of our new Capenna set review. If it's a card that you're wondering where it is, well, you can find that in our extended show notes, where we have extended commentary from David, from myself, from Emmy, on all of the cards. We're at 90 cards and counting right now. Obviously, we can't talk about them all, but you can get access to that by joining our Patreon at any tier. And of course, you can check back on our Monday show where we'll be closing out the previews, talking about the best of the rest and our impressions of the set overall. So one last thing before we end, worth mentioning. Remember, New Capena is the first set of the new release order. So we're going to get the pre-release on the 22th and the digital release on the 28th. No longer is the set releasing before online than on paper. First pre-release, yeah. week later, release on MTCO. But I wanted to stay for my pre-release by watching all the grinders streaming for two days straight. <laughs> so there's no excitement, Damn. so I know all the bills. Yeah, that's no longer here. And I'm happy for it, actually, as I think no, I'm going to play awesome. this release. It's, it's a lot better. It's so much new. Yeah. So yeah, I'm happy for that. 
There's more people that don't want to watch the grinders stream the set for two days straight before going to pre-release. I, and I agree. I, I had I was at the scenario where I was testing the cards in modern before my pre-release, and it was like now I don't want to play the pre-release. <laughs> so I'm happy for that. Yeah. So we will have like a a buffer. Previews are going to end in just a couple days. Actually, by the time you're listening to this episode, we'll have I think the entire spoiler up, and then we'll have a week to just sit with it, to think through to breathe, to speculate, try to get those stonks. Yeah, and I guess we'll come back with our first brew session in two weeks' time. Exactly. And by the 22th, so two weeks from now, the other weekend, we're going to be playing our pre-releases. All right, so lots to look forward to and lots of work cut out ahead of us, but that's going to do it for us today. Emmy, Damon, thank you as always. Thanks so much to you, Dan. Yeah, great chatting. See you. <laughs> See ya. Have a nice night. Bye-bye. That's a wrap on this edition of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. Tune in on Monday for part two of our Brewer's Guide to Streets of New Capenna and download the latest deck lists at faithlessbrewing.com. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. If you like what we do, you can join our community at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye.